Turn with me now, please, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We'll read the first 16 verses this morning. Hear the word of God. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. May God bless the reading of his word. Dear church family, with God's help this morning, we want to continue our discussion and preaching on the law of God. You recall we've been through the first table of the law, began the second table last week with the fifth commandment. So it's our turn now this morning to discuss the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20, 13. Now, 
The sixth commandment, like every other commandment, is extremely broad. And I'm going to read the catechism in a moment, and you can hear how broad it is. And so, what we want to do this morning is look at that breadth in the first thought of this sermon, and then in the second thought, I'm going to focus on one particular contemporary case study of a common thing today that is breaking this commandment. You recall in other years we did case studies of euthanasia. Uh, Several times we've done case studies on abortion when we talked about the sixth commandment. Well, today I want to do a case study with you on cancel culture. Cancel culture. So, the sermon is called The Sixth Commandment and Cancel Culture. First, we'll look at what God forbids following the Catechism 105, 106, 107. And then we're going to apply this, these biblical truths to the study of cancel culture and how it relates to us today and how we should respond to it. That's where we're going with God's help. So, Lord's Day 40. Lord's Day 40, questions 105 to 107. What does God require in the sixth commandment? That neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor, by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge, Also that I hurt not myself, nor willfully expose myself to any danger. Wherefore also the magistrate is armed with the sword to prevent murder. 106. But this commandment seems only to speak of murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof. Such as envy, hatred. Anger, the desire of revenge, and that he accounts all these as murder. 107. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness toward him and prevent his hurt as much as in us lies and that we do good even to our enemies. Well, you can't get much broader than that, can you? This encompasses really all of life, all of life. Notice that our instructor begins where the Bible begins with our thought life, our thought life, neither in thoughts, he says. So this is much deeper than outward murder. Outward murder, of course, is one of the grossest manifestations of breaking the sixth commandment. And sadly, outright murder our nation has one of the highest rates in the world. 
We can't look down at other nations. But it's much more common in your thoughts to kill than in your actions. Isn't that true? Any secret desire that arises within you to wish someone ill will. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God God counts that as murder. Murder. You can be sitting in a line of traffic and the red light changes. And the car in front of you doesn't go. And you mutter something under your breath. Come on, get going. And you have an evil thought to that person. You're breaking the sixth commandment. You're breaking the sixth commandment. So not every breaking of the sixth commandment is like Cain, where he raises his fist against his brother and kills him. But even internal anger, internal anger in our society is is filled with anger, isn't it? Isn't that true? Everywhere. I have completely stopped reading. If I'm reading something on the internet, I completely stopped reading all the comments underneath because so many of them are just so filled with anger and swear words and uh, junk stuff that just flies in the face of the Sixth Commandment. We live in the most angry society I think the world has ever known. We're murderers. We can be murderers in church. You can be a murderer when you think an evil thought of your brother and sister in Christ. We can be murderers in the most sacred of things. We can be murderers when people come around the Lord's table and you can think an evil thought of someone. Does she really belong there? So many ways we can murder in our thoughts. But we also murder with our words. When you gossip about someone, when you spread a rumor, you're killing. You're killing their reputation. You're killing their name, and their name is inseparable from who they are. Cruel teasing. Mocking. James says, James 2.11, He that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou dost kill thy neighbor, thou art a transgressor of the law. And we do that, James says, with our lips, because our lips are a world of iniquity. When I grew up, my mother always said this to us so many times. She said, you can speak about people as much as you want, as long as what you say is always good. Always good. I never remember my mother saying one evil word about one human being on planet Earth. But would to God that would be true of Christians today. The tongue is a little member, and it boasts great things. But behold, James says, how great a matter a little fire 
kindleth. A tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So when's the last time you killed someone? With your tongue. By saying something negative. This morning? Last week? Or maybe you, you can't even think about it because you've so minimized the sin that you do it so casually. It doesn't convict your conscience anymore. You've done it thousands of times. What a tragedy. This is one of the seven so-called respectable sins, as one author puts it in his book, in the Christian church. That you have the right to say something bad about someone else. Kill their reputation. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Then the instructor mentions gestures. You have that with Genesis 4, don't you? Cain, God can see on his face he's angry. He says, why are you angry? His very face conveyed it. His countenance fell. Sometimes we can kill someone with a look of our eyes. Maybe a roll of the eyes. With a frown on the face. We can kill without saying one word. Our eyes often speak a language every bit as clear as our words. And then, of course, deeds. Much less in deeds we can take revenge. We have so little respect for human life today that we can easily take revenge What has happened in Israel a few weeks ago, it just takes our breath away, doesn't it? That people would come in and just randomly kill everyone and have a goal just to kill as many Israelis as possible and kill the babies and then cut off their heads. It's unbelievable. And yet, We've got many politicians today that say you should be able to have an abortion all the way until birth. Have that baby come out the womb and what's worse, to cut off a head or to gruesomely kill a body? We're killers by nature. Maybe not in these gross ways, but in all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways. What a tragedy abortion is. What a tragedy euthanasia is. What a tragedy that man has so little respect for life. And it all comes with the, with the removal of the moral biblical fabric from our society. When you don't view man as made in the image of God, 
But if you manage just an evolutionary blob that somehow originated from some crazy little few cells that somehow got together in deep of the ocean and formed life somehow, and that multiplied over millions and billions of years, and, and now you're this complex human being with billions and trillions of body parts, and that all evolved somehow naturally without God, and you're just going into the ground when you die and there's no future, there's no value in life, life has no meaning, it's no wonder that we treat life flippantly. Why, why not injure my neighbor's reputation? He's just another blob of physical material. And so the tragedy is when the church takes over these same killing attitudes, every time I wound my neighbor, every time I wound my neighbor with my words or even my thoughts, much less my deeds, am I remembering that my neighbor is created in the image of the holy, almighty, triune God? I don't have the right kill my neighbor in any of these ways and much less myself we can kill ourselves with all kinds of things can't we we can commit spiritual suicide by not obeying the gospel not repenting of our sins not flying to Christ as the only savior Or we can kill ourselves physically by excessive drinking or by smoking or by drug abuse of one kind or another. So much. So much killing is going on that we don't think about of ourselves and of others. This commandment is very broad. Now, it doesn't mean that all killing is wrong. There can be execution of justice by capital punishment where blood has been shed, blood should be shed. Also, there can be a killing of a just, in a just war, legitimate self-defense. We pray for peace in the Middle East, but What if Israel were not to go to war? Well, that would just embolden Hamas, and it would happen again. So Israel is saying, we are declaring a just war. There is such a thing as that. Exodus 22, verse 2. God says, even in personal self-defense, if a thief be found breaking up and be smitten, in your house, that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. Acts of self-defense are legitimate. Killing in a just war is legitimate. Execution, capital punishment for those who've taken life is legitimate because it's biblical. Now, where does this plethora of sin come from against the Against the Sixth Commandment. Well, question 106 goes on to tell us it comes from our heart. It comes from internal sins that God abhors. 
And these are all spelled out. This is the beauty of the Heidelberg Catechism, by the way. It takes all that the Bible says. It puts it in a very succinct summary for you. For us. So that we can expound it to you. And through topical preaching, you get a good grasp of the whole picture. And this, this is a classic example. Of course, there's proof text for everything it says. So it's thoroughly biblical. Thoroughly biblical. In forbidding, forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof. See, he's getting to the heart, to the original sin that lives within us. And what are they? Envy, hatred, anger, the desire for revenge. This is the ultimate root problem. Qualities like this that live within us. Envy is a bitter feeling of discontent and ill will at seeing someone else's advantage. Envy eats away at the corrupt heart. Solomon says in Proverbs 14.30, Envy is the rottenness of the bones. Even God's people can sometimes be envious. Asaph said, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy is a killer. But so is hatred. Envy and hatred are first cousins. Envy breeds hatred. And hatred stirs up strife, Solomon says. That's why John says, 1 John 2, 9, He that saith he's in the light, but hateth his brother, is in darkness, even until now. But also anger. Anger is like internal fire. It's like, a, it's like a volcano with a fire inside of it. And when it comes out, it just spews lava everywhere, destroys, burns everything up. Anger, when it comes out from within, is an explosion of rage. Anger is the father of murder. I had a policeman tell me one time, that the calls that he dreads the most are family feuds. He's scared when he walks up to that house because when families get mad at each other, there's no telling what they'll do. It comes from the heart. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, there's good anger, of course. Anger for the glory of God. That's a whole nother subject. And then there's desire for revenge. Desire for revenge. A person who, who wants to take revenge renders evil for evil and doesn't obey the commandment, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So, killing, killing embraces all kinds of actual sins, but it also embraces our original Heart sin. And that includes sins of omission. And that's what you see in question 107. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No, for when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor and to show 
patience and peace, meekness, mercy, and kindness towards him. Prevent his hurt as much as in us lies. You see, every commandment, all ten of them, have a flip side. The flip side of thou shalt not is the thou shalt. It's not enough to be neutral. You can't say, well, at least I didn't say any words against my enemy. No, no. Are you praying for your enemy? Are you loving your enemy? So, this question 107 really uncovers a lot of our sins of omission. And those sins of omission are grounded, grounded in this principle of the golden rule of Matthew 7, 12. All things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do to others as you would have them do to you. That is the fulfilling of the sixth commandment. So reading question 107 is a lot easier than practicing it. To love our enemies, to show kindness to those who speak ill of us, to show our neighbor patience, forgiving 70 times 7, as the Bible puts it, or being long-suffering, as Paul writes to the Colossians, forbearing and forgiving one another, or as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 5, we exhort your brethren, be patient toward all men. Toward all men. See, you can, just by not being patient, you can commit a sin of omission. And then you need to be peaceful. You need to be a peacemaker in this world. As much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Romans twelve eighteen, And you need to be meek. You need to be meek. Learn of me, Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. For I am meek. Don't stand up for your own rights all the time. But all kinds of things. But we with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, ought to forbear one another in love. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 2. And we're to show mercy. Mercy even to our enemies. Show compassion rather than hardness. You know, when you have an enemy, who, who, someone who just hates you, and they're in trouble in some way, you know that internal nudge you have, internal nudge you have inside of you, this is a chance to reach out to them. This is a chance to show them mercy, to show them love. But there's another side of you that says, no, they're going to they're gonna respond with more anger. I, I better leave it alone. Don't leave it alone. Reach out. Show mercy. Show patience. Show, notice what the catechism says, all kindness. I, why did they put that word all in front of it? Why didn't you just say kindness like all the others? Well, they mean all kinds of kindness. When love burns in the heart, flames of kindness will spring out in all kinds of direction. All kinds of kindness. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Wow, that's amazing. 
preferring your enemy, preferring those who speak ill of you. This takes grace. And then we're to protect them, prevent his hurt as much as in us lies. Really? I'm supposed to do that to my enemy? Luke 6, 35. Love your enemies, do good and lend to them, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. You shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful, and he is kind to the evil. To be like your Savior. Like our God. And then goodness. We're to do good. If your enemy hunger, Romans 12.20, feed him. If he thirst, give him to drink. In so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That's amazing. That's not coals of fire to destroy him. That's coals of fire bringing them on your head to a neighbor who doesn't have coals so that his house can be warm. You know, President Abraham Lincoln once had a, one of his uh, helpers strongly reprimand him at a meeting for being too good to his enemies. To strengthen your position as president, Mr. President, the aide said, you should take action to destroy your enemies. Lincoln replied, Am I not destroying my enemies when I make them my friends? In other words, I'd rather have them be my friends than my enemies. And I'm going to treat them well. So there's seven qualities here in all in question 107. All grounded solidly in Scripture. How we are to treat those who who don't treat us well and not sin against the sixth commandment. Now, of course, we're all guilty here, all of us. And we all need to put our hand in our own bosom, as our forefathers used to say, and pull it out, leprous, and fly to the cross of Calvary, to that Savior who never sinned against it, but died and was murdered himself So that we might be set free in Him. He who forgives all. He who is so approachable, so forgiving, so good. He was a perfect model of obedience to the sixth commandment. Flee to Him. Flee to Him. So, let's examine ourselves. And ask ourselves, how are we really loving our brother and sister? Or are we killing one another? What is your life like? Is 90% of your conversation positive about other people? 99? still sinning. We are to do as much good as in us lies, Paul says. Strive to be living peaceably with God and with man. 
thou shalt not kill. Flee to Christ for forgiveness. And ask him to change you from within. To be motivated by all the things listed in number 107 and not motivated by the heart sins of 106. And be serious about this. Because God sees the heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your words. Bring your murderous tendencies to the cross and bury them there. So what is cancel culture? Why is that related intimately to the sixth commandment? That's our case study this morning. I'm going to move you rapidly through four thoughts. It's destructive roots. It's sinful challenges. It's biblical remedy. And it's practical helps. Or some practical helps. First of all, then, a definition. Wikipedia defines it this way. Cancel culture is a phrase contemporary to the late 2010s and the early 2020s used to refer to a culture in which those who are deemed to have acted or spoken in an unacceptable manner are ostracized, boycotted, or shunned. This shunning may extend to social or professional circles, whether on social media or in person, and those subject to this ostracism are said to have been canceled. So, in our day, this definition is operative across the board against Christians and against those that would uphold biblical morality. Not just at a personal level, but in the form of a social peer pressure level, the most blatant wickedness is being promoted as mainstream narrative. And if you don't succumb to that, you're canceled from the discourse of society. Everything from news outlets to governments, corporations to social media companies, universities, schools, films, music, are promoting perversities, biblical, biblically speaking, that call evil good and good evil. The list is endless. Progressive political tendencies, wokeism, the LBGTQ agenda, apostate aberrations of Christianity. All of these things are redefining moral categories and condemning anyone who embraces biblical categories and who does not capitulate to their amoralistic ideals. And this promotion is relentless. And those who refuse to conform are canceled, persecuted by the mainstream establishment and its supporters. Now what's critical for us 
is that in the face of all the social pressure that abounds, and you young people, you know more about this than some of the older ones do. We must not lose sight of the fact that the Bible is full of warnings against conforming to the opinion of the ungodly majority. Paul puts it so succinctly when he says, Do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men or God? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. You see, the standard for what is acceptable or not today is no longer the objective truth of the Bible. But it's according to what you feel is acceptable. And truth is anything that you think is okay. And you're able to be the moral arbiter of right and wrong yourself rather than the objective authority of the Word of God. So in modern society, the arbiter of right and wrong has increasingly become the individual, but supported by the mainstream establishment under the sway of the political left. Their tactics are reflected so well in Saul Alinsky's manual called Rules for Radicals where he advises the radical progressive less, pick your target, freeze it, personalize it, and then polarize it. This is a blatant cancel Christian culture approach from this society. And this political war, it is a political war, This moral war, it is a moral war, reflects the world's spiritual war against Christianity using shame, ridicule, and intimidation. That's Alinsky's trinity. He said we are to use shame, ridicule, and intimidation to promote an agenda that is hostile to the Christian faith. So last year, when Ken Harrison, the CEO of Promise Keepers, said about marriage and gender roles this, one of the things they're doing to make their agenda happen is destroying the identity of the American people. For if they can get Christians, especially Christian men, to sit down and be silent and be passive under their woke agenda, then they can be effective. And it's working. Many Christian men are doing nothing to respond to these current issues. For saying just those words, Ken Harrison was accused of hate speech. He was vilified on the media across the board. And as one writer explains, a USA Today editorial castigated him for his comments and called upon AT&T and the Dallas Cowboys to rescind the ministry's contract for upcoming events because of this terrible hate speech. This, this is just one example that is compounded tens of thousands of times 
in our cancer cancel culture society today. So cancel culture has as its goal to get people who want to be biblical and moral and Christian to live in fear of being fired and ostracized and expelled and shunned. It's destroyed careers. It's led to tragic suicides, especially among young people. It destroys the opportunity for free speech and dialogue and meaningful exchange of ideas. It's generated a nightmarish landscape of fear and censorship, anger, and closed doors. Cancer culture is wicked to the core. And we don't know how bad things are going to be, but the trajectory is getting worse. The antithetical line of division between the godly and the ungodly is becoming more extreme. But Jesus says, Paul says, we must never compromise the truth of the gospel or its implications for the whole of life. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? The prophets, this is nothing new. The prophets also underwent cancel culture. It wasn't called that in Old Testament times, but that's what ungodly Israel was doing to them. And so they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth because the world was not worthy of them, says Hebrews 11. You see, Jesus said the world will hate you because it hated me. So it's not due. It's just more intense than it's been in the past. Society has become trigger-happy. Character assassinations on the Internet are abominable and over-the-top, a thousandfold. People have become hasty to assassinate the reputation of those they disagree with on a mere whim. With our words and with our cancel culture, we're not that far from where Cain was when he hated his brother Abel. You see, unjustly canceling another to destroy that person's reputation and influence and livelihood is to sin against the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. What a tragedy that our society has lost the basic moral fabric of loving your neighbor. So what are the challenges of this? Well, first of all, we need to study to equip ourselves with a comprehensive biblical world and life view. We need to know a little bit about our theology, what man is, biblical apologetics, how to defend the Christian faith, how to, how to give a reason for the hope that is in us when we meet the antithesis of the world. There's no shortcut here. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it and stand four square on this precious book we call the Holy Bible. And second, we need to understand the importance of theology based on the Scriptures. Theology is the queen of the sciences, our forefathers, the Reformers and Puritans said. And where that queen is banished from her throne and exiled from her kingdom, and people start saying things, even Christians start saying things like doctrine is boring, the entire domain of human knowledge implodes into anarchy and autonomy 
and chaos. We need to treasure our doctrinal standards. They give us a summary of what the Bible's teaching. We need to know what we believe so that in the midst of the vacuum of our day, we can tell people we are not just to be left to our own devices or our own will or our own thinking. We're not autonomons. We're not autonomous. We're not to believe in naturalism. We're to believe in the authoritative, unchanging, inspired, infallible word of God's truth. The biblical worldview, said Augustine, is that all truth is God's truth. Truth isn't your prerogative. It's His. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And since God is the creator of all things... And He made everything for the purpose of glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever. We are to yield to this truth not only as truth objectively, but we're to yield to the person of this truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the definitive interpreter of all truth. So, when the establishment seeks to cancel Christian thinking from the culture. You see, seeks to redefine truth about God, about man, about marriage, about sin, about sexual issues, about redemption. We are to respond. We are to speak up. For truth. We are to say with Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. So what is the biblical remedy? What is the biblical remedy for cancel culture? Well, it's law and gospel. It's law and gospel. The law of God, we must insist on telling those around us who would cancel us, still is good for today. The moral law expressed in the Ten Commandments summarizes our duty to God and to man. And that law does not change, we need to tell people, according to your feelings or your interpretations. It's grounded in the Scriptures. It does not change with the shifting sands of culture. And the first table of this Decalogue, This is one reason why we read it every Sunday morning. Tells us what our attitude is to be toward God. And the second table is to tell us what our attitude is to be towards man. And so it's this law, you see, which is absolute, which is reflective of the character of God, which is unchanging in its standard. Because sin cannot be redefined. There is no such thing as homosexual marriage. Marriage is between one man, one woman, says the Bible. Now, judges may say it is true. Uh, Ministers who compromise the Scriptures may officiate so-called weddings and bring a man and a woman together. But we, as Christians, it's impossible for us to say this is a legitimate marriage. It goes flat against the Bible. So, and that, that's just one example. There's, there's many of these, of course. We must allow God's law to set the standard for what's right and wrong. 
and not allow society to redefine concepts like marriage. So, the biblical remedy for cancel culture is to go back to the law and to have a prophetic voice in our culture to address God's world with God's word and God's law and God's wisdom and to tell people lovingly, respectfully, that God is in charge and not we, that God has an authoritative word and ours is not, and that we're to reckon with the holy God and we're to bring ourselves into accountability to God in this life before he brings us into accountability before him on the judgment day forever and ever. That's why John the Baptist said in front of Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And he cut off his head. We will be persecuted for speaking truth. And prophets, reformers, Puritans, those who have gone before us, yes, they too were canceled sometimes, sometimes persecuted for such prophetic boldness. Jesus said, don't be surprised. The world hates me because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. John 7, 7. And therefore they will hate you as well. Now it doesn't mean we, we don't strive to be kind in our approach and um, evangelistic and, and winsome. But we can't just sit back and be passive. You see, if the cancel culture people could, could, could hear this sermon right now, they would probably say something like this. Yeah, but you Christians also cancel culture. You cancel culture from your biblical viewpoint. You cancel culture when you discipline those who you think are living in sin. You cancel culture when you boycott maybe stores that are promoting agendas, ideologies that you can't agree with based on on your Bible. How do you respond to that? Well, you tell them freely, yes, we do believe the Bible is the authoritative guide of life. And so, in one sense, we do cancel culture. But with these four conditions, first of all, biblically, we believe that we need to follow the Bible without equivocation. So if it's against the Bible, we're against it. Number two, if it's sinful, according to the Bible, we need to cancel it. We need to boycott, indeed, stores that promote sinful agendas that are an abomination to the Lord, the Bible says. Now our goal is not just to rebuke sin. Our goal is to be restorative, to bring those back to the Bible who've wandered away from it. Because they have no authoritative guide other than themselves, which is unacceptable, the Bible says. Number three, we do it lovingly and respectfully. We don't yell at them. We don't scream at them. 
But we don't run away from them. We tell them lovingly, respectfully, the truth. And number four, the most important of all perhaps, is we're aiming for the glory of God. We care more about the glory of God than we do the approval of men. If we get canceled by man, we bow under it. It's not pleasant, but we bow under it. But woe be to us if we get canceled by God for embracing their agendas of sin and abomination. So the law teaches us, you see, that there are circumstances where a form of canceling or avoidance or even disfellowshipping is necessary when people continue to persist in sin after many, many warnings. And in church discipline, yes, we, we do practice church discipline because we love them so much. We want them to be restored on biblical principles. We follow the Bible's principles of discipline. But the discipline is meant in love. It's not done out of hate. That's the point. To the glory of God. So, that's where the gospel comes in. In our dealings with other people. In our speaking our opinion. We don't only speak law, but the law is tempered by the mercy of the gospel. When we denounce the sins of others, we do it with humility and compassion and grace and love and patience and respect. All those things mentioned in question 107. So that we don't get accused of killing our neighbor through our reverse cancel culture. No, no. We do this for their welfare. For their welfare. Paul puts it so well. Colossians 3 Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. So we remember, if you're a true believer, you remember God's incredible, amazing mercy in saving you. And so when you come up against those who would cancel biblical culture, you remember that there but for the grace of God, I would have gone. And so you reach out to them in love and compassion, remembering the gospel, remembering that God did not cancel me from fellowship with himself. So even though they are canceling me, I don't cancel them in terms of hopes for the gospel to conquer them. I reach out. I reach out to the most disadvantaged, the most poor, the most wicked with the word of truth. We have what the entire world needs. Oh, this no matter how much they cancel us, it ought to just stir up in us a more of an evangelistic spirit. What a shame it would be if we failed to be patient and kind to others when God has been so patient and kind to us. We need law and we need gospel. We need the Bible. And cancel culture, of course, is guilty of both. It rejects the gospel altogether. And... It's guilty of antinomianism, living without the law. The only law is what, what I think is right. 
which is corrupt because man is sinful. So basically, I, I do what I want to do. We need to fight against that. So finally, some practical counsels as I wrap this up now. I just have six of them. I'm going to give them in just two or three minutes. Number one, fear God more than man. Esteem the smile of God to be greater than the smiles of men, the frowns of God to be greater than the frowns of men. David said, I have set the Lord, the Lord, Jehovah name, always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. So we embrace a big God theology and we rest in God's sovereignty. We do what we can, whether we're accepted or rejected by our cancel culture, but we will speak the truth with love, fearing God more than man. Number two, equip yourself with solid foundations based on scripture. Learn to exercise critical thinking. Learn to understand what the cultural narrative is, is really saying and doing. Study the great confessions of the church, the three forms of unity, the Westminster's divines. Know your theology. Know your foundations because a mindless Christianity will only produce a spineless Christianity. Be well read. Be well informed. Read good books that buttress the Bible so that you know what to say to those who challenge you. And number three, say no to any coercion that would force you into endorse lies. Say no to any coercion that would enforce you to endorse lies. As you lovingly reach out to people, be careful that you don't embrace their lies as you seek to communicate. Don't say, yes, that's true, when it's not true. You need to be honest with them in love. And when you go out to work, remember there are certain career paths that will take you right into the middle of the cancel culture. You've got to be strong. You've got to learn to say no when they try to force you to embrace their lies. And number four, speak the truth with wisdom and prudence. Carefulness. Weigh your words. Know that they're going to look at every word to see how they can destroy you. Be a good listener. Let them express themselves. Don't be rude. Paul writes it this way, 2 Timothy 2, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If peradventure... God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and they may recover themselves out of the snares of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Oh, what a beautiful text that is. That's how to do it. And number five, pray for thick skin and a tender heart. Don't take it personally. When you stand for truth, and others vilify you for it. God's love for you is not diminished, even though you have offended him countless times. So out of God's love for you, pray for strength to love your enemies and to bless those who curse you. And finally, number six, trust 
in the power of the gospel. Believe what Paul says. Be there with him. Make the same confession. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So pray that God will make you a faithful witness in this cancel culture. That you will not kill others as you respond to them, but that you will love them. Even if it leads to the martyrdom of your reputation, you can be sure that the Lord will graciously reward you for standing up for truth when He comes again in His glory. Amen. Gracious God, teach us that we shall not kill. Help us to handle also the cancel culture in a way without killing those who oppose us with our thoughts, with our words, with our gestures, and with our deeds, and with our hearts. But help us to love the truth. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to promote the truth wherever we go, by law and by gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.